You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 568 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday. February 28th, 2023. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about generations a little bit before I have finished the book. I'm almost finished. I think I need to break this one up into a couple of episodes. So we will, with an hour from the end, we will get into Generations by Neil Howe and William Strauss. My most popular podcast episode to date actually has to do with another book by these two demographers, The Fourth Turning. And in reading that book last year, I was just absolutely fascinated by the concept. Whether they're right in every particular is somewhat beside the point, because if they're even partways right, that there's a kind of repeating pattern to generations, well, then that really is something. That's really, really something. Now, it might not tell us what is going to happen next in the particulars. Only God knows, and ultimately only God decides what is going to happen in the particulars next. But if we know, generally speaking, that we are due for a correction, then maybe we know better how to invest ourselves. That's that's my view. That's my interest here in reading the book is... Just like there are trends and cycles in markets, the stock market, the housing market, etc. Just like there are four seasons to a year, and they may vary depending on what part of the world you live in, or the year. Some years are milder, some years are more harsh. Nevertheless, there are seasons, right? We recognize that there are four distinct seasons in places like Greeley, Colorado, for instance. There might be exceptions, sure, but we don't say there is no such thing as seasons, and that's not a useful category just because there are exceptions. Now, this said, I just want to set this up for you before I get into the meat and potatoes, which will be, I think, the next episode, the next podcast episode that I record, unless some major event happens in the news cycle, or something is just very much pressing on my heart and my mind that I believe I should be talking about first. My next episode, I'll be talking more specifically about the content in Generations, but I just want to set up the premise. I want to explain why this is plausible to me before getting into the particulars. Because if you don't think it's plausible at a very, very root level, at a very presuppositional level, then your eyes are going to glaze over and all of the particulars are going to be lost on you. And this is true of so many things, right? This is true of so many things that if we're debating up here, and you can't see, but I've got my hands above my head, (laughs) if we're debating a certain issue up here, but where people's fundamental disagreement at root actually lies is down here. And now I'm you know, I've got my hands down by my knees. 
If it's actually down there, well then maybe you need to deal with that knee level debate first. And otherwise, if you don't, people just feel like oh, this is a waste of time. This is a waste of time and you're not going to persuade them. Now, if you can deal with that presuppositional level belief, that core belief, maybe, right? Maybe, maybe you can persuade them on the particulars. So even there, I say that, and my interest is not necessarily to persuade you that the how strauss generational model is correct. My interest is to ask, and for you to join me in asking, is there a value to thinking of humanity in terms of generations, thinking of ourselves in terms of generations? Is there a value in that? What value is there to it? And is there some kind of a risk, right? Is there a a downside if we start thinking about generations as a useful category that informs our decision-making. It, it informs how we relate to people. I would say if we would disagree with talking of generations in a meaningful way, in a, dare I say it, even predictive way, it is only because most of the time we assume on a very subconscious level without having to actually explain ourselves or answer any questions or justify it, we assume on a very common sense level that, of course, right, of course, what generation someone belongs to or was born into, of course, there's a predictive quality to it. Of course, it's not all there is to this person that they're part of that generation. But yes, if they saw certain events at a certain age, or even participated in those events at a certain age, yes, that's going to have an effect. And now what age are they, right? You know, it's it's too easy to conflate a couple of things that maybe don't necessarily overlap so neatly. They overlap a little bit, but they're, they're, they are distinct. And on the one hand, it is the age that somebody is. And on the other hand, there is what age they have been at certain events happening in the world and them knowing about those events or them taking part in those events. So you'll remember here a few episodes ago, <laughs> not not uh, so, so recently, but I suppose two weeks have passed at this point. I talked about The Grey Champion, a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne from Twice Told Tales. The Grey Champion... Nathaniel Hawthorne is writing in the 1830s about a fictional, I think, imagined character coming to the rescue of colonial Bostonians in 1689. So a good generation prior to the war for independence. But it it gets better still because... The great champion, even when he shows up in Nathaniel Hawthorne's story in 1689, is from a previous generation yet. So the great champion is like this ghost who was a pilgrim, Puritan father of the community in the previous generation. So a good 80 years ago, a full lifespan ago. When these old men who are contemporary 
1689 are questioning one another, who is this aged sire? (laughs) Who is this respected brother? Surely we should remember him. He looks old enough to have been scolding us when we were kids, right? So that is to say, if they're aged, if they're 80, then this guy is from a full generation ago. And what does that mean? What does that translate into for our thinking when this guy, the great champion, might be from 1600, he's cropping up magically, supernaturally, miraculously, in 1689, Nathaniel Hawthorne is saying this is a kind of parable for what happened in the War for Independence. And Nathaniel Hawthorne is writing this story, not quite, but just about one full seculum removed from that same War for Independence, a good 60 years or so lighter. Not quite a full lifespan, but for a lot of people, sure, sure. And it gets better because we're reading it today. All this is to say, it's not just a question of age, because the great champion crops up at the age of whatever he is, and there are elderly men around him, but if he's from a previous era, the things that he has seen and done and participated in and been affected by at various phases of life make him into a very different person. And if you were to transfer him, if this were even possible, Transfer the great champion, born circa, what, 1520, to our day. Just drop him in. He would not be, if he were 90 in his own time, he would not come across as just any old 90-year-old in our time. And that's because certain events are happening at certain stages in his life. But I think there is There is a piece where you say, well, this person is of a certain age, and so I'm going to treat them in such and such a way by virtue of where they're at, maturity-wise or condition-wise. You know, if they are elderly and fragile and their mind is starting to slip, well, then I'm going to be gentle with them. I'm going to show them respect. I am not going to try and stress them out and confuse them. I'm not going to torment them. I'm going to look out for them. I'm going to honor them. If they're a bit younger, 20 years younger, just coming into retirement perhaps, or they would have been, but for Biden's economy, if they are in their 60s, then you say, oh, you're you're in retirement. And you might relate to them in such and such a way because they're obviously ready to move on to a different phase of life than they have been in. But they're not, they're not the same them that they were at 40 or at 20 or when they were born in so many ways. So let's establish that, right? Let's establish that a generation is born in a certain time span and therefore, provided that generation survives, it experiences major events throughout the, the years of its being alive it experiences different events in a different way. You know, think of crops. A farmer might plant various crops throughout the year because this has a certain growth cycle and this one has a certain growth cycle and this one has a certain growth cycle. And some things you don't want to plant early, early spring, but some things you might be able to. Other things you don't plant 
in the early summer. Other things, you might. Sure. Anytime my wife and I talk about gardening, she comes home with a whole bunch of seeds. And you look at the back of these seed packets, and without fail, they'll say, how much sunlight, water, what kind of soil content, when is best to plant them, how deep to plant them, how long they typically take to grow. All of that may have some kind of a translation principle when it comes to people as well. And what could we ask? If we wanted to go back to God's word and consider, is there anything in God's word that speaks to this to help us in our understanding so that we can take every thought captive, including but not limited to how and Strauss's generational model, Strauss Howe's generational theory. Well, a quick keyword search, not that this is all you do, but a quick, a quick keyword search of the word generation at BibleGateway.com renders 198 results. 161 of them are in the Old Testament. 37 are in the New Testament. Lots in Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms. Lots. We're talking over 20 instances of the word generation or generations in each of those books. Psalms is close to 40. Psalms alone has actually as many references minus one as the entire New Testament when it comes to generations. So 200 or near enough times that the word generation appears in the English Standard Version of our Bible almost 200 times. It's a category. It's a category. <laughs> it's, it's okay for us to say, yes, that's a thing. That's a thing that exists. So then the question would presumably be, what does the Bible say about generations? And how does the Bible talk about generations? Well, just a quick scanning of the first several. In Genesis, we've got, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. That's the first instance, Genesis 2, 4. Also very curious that these are the generations is how the heavens and the earth being created is described when it's also how so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so is described. So Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Genesis 7, 1, then Yahweh said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Genesis 9, 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Genesis 10, 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So on and so forth, right? You get the idea. Genesis, lots of interest in generations. 
there's a lot of interest in who begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. Lots and lots of interests. Isaac is not just nobody. He doesn't come from nowhere. It matters who his father is. Same also with Jacob, who will be renamed Israel. Same also with Joseph. It matters who their father was. And actually, I think that's a curious thing to realize as Americans in the year 2023, when there has been so much out-of-wedlock birth in recent decades, and without getting distracted with all the reasons why there have been so many out-of-wedlock births, just the fact that there have been so many is enough that even when couples like my wife and I married and had our eight kids after we married, it's not assumed. It's not assumed by people that a woman is married when she has kids, when she starts having kids. In fact, that's a question I am floored that both Lauren and I have gotten when meeting people who don't know us for the first time. She will tell them that she has eight kids. And more than once, people have responded, wow, really? All by the same father? Uh, Yeah, I have been asked that question when people find out that I have eight kids. Oh, are they all yours? Uh, Yeah, that'd be weird. (laughs) But that's just it. We are the weird ones. We are the weird ones in our generation. And that really is my point. If you were to transpose me into the GI generation, so the generation that went off to fight World War II, I would not be quite so odd. I would still be odd because there are things that I've seen, even the same age, 36. If I were 36 at the entry into World War II of the United States officially, if I were 36, I would still be a different person. But if you were to start talking about how many kids I've got and all that kind of stuff, it wouldn't be quite so unusual as it is for a lot of people these days. But that's just it. That's it. Is generations are a useful category. And we see this in the Bible. We see this in the book of Exodus, by the way, which I just read for you seven to 12, (laughs) chapters seven to 12 in yesterday's episode. So I'm at least up to chapter 12, which is great. But think of when Israel is brought out of Egypt, and they grumble on the edge of the promised land after 12 spies go into Canaan and come back, and 10 are saying, no, we can't. We cannot. They are too strong for us. We are like grasshoppers in their eyes. Think of what the judgment is on Israel when they want to stone Joshua and Caleb for saying, This is an exceedingly good land, and God has brought us this far. He can give it to us. We should take it. What is the judgment on Israel? What is the judgment on that generation? It's that they wander in the desert for 40 years until all that generation is dead in the desert. That's the judgment from God. All that generation will die, with the exception 
and this is, again, where I say there are exceptions. It can be useful to have the category of generations. Also recognize that there are exceptions. That doesn't mean there is no rule, but there are exceptions, so don't get checked out. Joshua and Caleb, because they believed that God could give Canaan to Israel, as he had said, as he had promised, because that's what this really boiled down to. Not first and foremost, are you scared? But do you trust that God is going to do what he has said he will do? God allows them to come into the promised land and to enjoy the fulfillment of the promise in a way that the rest of their generation is not allowed to. Now, it's interesting too. consider when we look at what Psalms has to say, because there's a lot of references a lot more than in, in any other single book, almost as many as in the entirety of the New Testament. Just one short. Psalm 10.6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Again, generations are a thing. This is a category according to God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be referencing it. Psalm 12:7 You O Yahweh will keep them you will guard us from this generation forever. Mm-hmm. So sometimes generations go bad it would seem. Sometimes you get a bad crop and they need to be uh sent out to wander in the desert for 40 years maybe. Just saying. Psalm 14:5 There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Ooh, So they can go good. They can go bad. And it would seem there can be such a thing as a generation of the righteous. Hmm. (laughs) Psalm 2230. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. All right. So then here we've got a responsibility. The older folks have to pass down to the younger folks. Here's what God's word says. Here is who God is. Here's what he has done. Here's what he has promised to do. Believe in him, fear him, love him, obey him, serve him. Psalm 24, 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Okay. So there must be such a thing. There must be such a thing as a generation of those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 45, 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 48, 13, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation. Psalm 49, 11, their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names, which is to say that I am Ozymandes, the great famous poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley. It is to say, even though you name a land after yourself, which is to say you must have conquered it, you must have vanquished it, you must have taken it by guile or by might. So what? So what? You're going to die at a certain point. Remember that. Psalm 49, 19, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. 
Psalm 61.6, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. Interestingly, there's only one reference to generations in Proverbs. I find that very interesting. Proverbs 27, 23 through 25. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. So I think this is to say there's something of a recognition of what we see in our day. And as a point of fact, it's always been the case. If you pay attention to history, the reason why history is variegated and diverse and things happen and things change is because people change. Or should I say, one generation can follow after the Lord and the next generation after can be completely rebellious or vice versa. One generation can be completely self-absorbed and the next generation can be seeking God's face. And the outcomes are going to be very different for those generations. One will be blessed. The other will be cursed. One will be remembered fondly forever. The other will become a byword and a warning. You don't want to be like them. You don't want to have that end. And that's just it. When we think about one generation to a next, perhaps rebelling in the worst case from their parents, or that's what we call it. They rebel. Well, is it just that? You think of the king's lists in the Old Testament. You have a wicked king followed by a king who fears the Lord. The king who fears the Lord is not rebelling against his father or his grandfather, who was a wicked king and who worshiped other gods and who did abominable things that cost him the kingdom. The one who seeks after the Lord is not rebelling to turn away from what is sin and turn back towards faithfulness and obedience to God. That's not rebellion. And we need to be very careful in the next several years, the next few decades in particular for my generation, the millennial generation, we have to be very careful that we don't suppose that everything that the boomers in particular have set in motion or cemented in place must be the way that it is forever after. We've got to put our thinking caps on and study up and get ready now because it's going to be our turn before we know it to be making decisions, to be leading, to be governing. And are we ready for that? Have we prepared for that? That's a critically important question. And actually, that question is very much at the center of why I believe God has put it on my heart to record this podcast and do the writing bit. Because my generation, at a certain point here, is not going to have a generation of boomers telling us, no, you can't do that. No, we've always done it this way. We're not going to have a generation of boomers entitled themselves calling us entitled. All the while, who's passed down <laughs> record-breaking national debt to whom, by the way? Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who, who's entitled here? 
us? Us? Really? We're not the ones who've been in political power. That was you guys. That was all you. I wonder. I don't know. I don't know why God has put me in a position of opportunity and keeps drawing me back to this. But I do wonder. I wonder if his purpose is that I would help to equip and prepare a generation to seek his face. And if that is the case, well then, let's get to it. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) A generation is a thing. I am, like I said before, one hour from the conclusion of this book. And when I'm finished, I will talk with you about all of the findings and what I think. Because there are, in the particulars, not just in a generic sense, go read it if you want all of the specifics. I'm not going to be able to do justice to every specific. There's too much. But... I'll say this, it is helpful for my soul, for my morale, to consider that at a certain point, the people who are so stubbornly committed to what appears destined for destruction in the country that I live in, in the country that my wife and my children live in, in the country that my family and friends live in, to consider that those stubborn people are not going to live forever is actually a great mercy. It's sobering to realize I'm not going to live forever. You're not going to live forever. But there's a comfort that comes in realizing that a generation of elderly, entitled baby boomers is passing away before our eyes. And when they're gone, they're gone. Now let's talk about some current events items. Speaking of current events, decline is a choice. DeSantis releases new ad Rallying conservatives to fight for freedom. This from the Daily Wire, February 26th. I'm going to go ahead and play this ad so you can get the audio. And then I have a few thoughts to share with you about it. Here's cut one. When the world lost its mind, when common sense suddenly became an uncommon virtue, Florida was a refuge of sanity a citadel of freedom for our fellow Americans and even for people around the world. Ron DeSantis has decided to put his people first. Ron DeSantis taking a lot of heat over it, but he's not backing down. Florida's success has been made more difficult by the floundering federal establishment in Washington, D.C. An inflationary spending binge that has left our nation weaker and our citizens poor. It has enacted pandemic restrictions and mandates. It has recklessly facilitated open borders. It has imposed an energy policy that has crippled our nation's domestic production. This has caused many to be pessimistic about the country's future. Some even say that failure is inevitable. Florida has proved positive that we, the people, are not destined for failure. DeSantis wins. He has made a promise, and he's making good on the promise. Florida is leading the nation. We are the nation's fastest-growing state. We rank number one in education freedom. We are number one in economic freedom. Florida also ranks number one in public higher education. This is a record we can all be proud of. That's why the left hates Governor DeSantis, because he's a winner. That's what the guy does, he wins. Decline is a choice. Success is attainable. And freedom is worth fighting for. 
<laughs> I got chills. That's great. Now, why does that give me goosebumps? Only because of this. Because my generation came of age, me specifically, my wife and I specifically, got married in 2006. Our first son, our eldest son, Josiah, was born eight some months, eight months and can't remember if it was give or take a few days, but he was born prematurely just a little bit in 2007. Our second son was born 2008. Eli and Josiah were born and in diapers still when the recession of 2008 hit. I was a freshman, if memory serves, when the planes flew into the Pentagon and the World Trade Center in 2001. Friends of mine, my brother, my brothers-in-law, went off and joined the Army, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, to fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athists. And I stayed home and got married, and my wife and I started having kids. And the Great Recession hit in 2008, just as we're trying to get our feet under us, just as we're trying to get off the ground. Double-digit unemployment in southern Ohio, very economically depressed, jobs leaving the area, companies closing their doors, an oppressive tightening of the treatment of employees by their employers because, hey, you're expendable. If we fire you, we can replace you with any one of hundreds of very eager applicants who are just waiting outside. We have their resumes. So we're going to treat you any way we want, and you're going to take it. What corrected that 2008 recession for my family in particular, five years into Lauren's and my marriage, at the age of 25, I moved back to eastern Montana, where I'm originally from. I was born and raised in Glendive, Montana, Savage, Montana, Kalispell, Montana. We moved to Ohio when I was 10. So you could say I was raised in southern Ohio. You could say I was raised in Montana. But I moved back, and I got a job in the oil and gas industry. And all of a sudden, we were able to rent and then buy a house. We were able to buy a van that was big enough for our family. Not new, but gently used from a church camp. That's where our van was before we bought it. From a, it, was, it was a Bible camp van, gently used. It had a few thousand miles on it, a dozen or so thousand miles on it. We were able to be helpful to my brother, my dad, my brothers-in-law, my cousins, friends of ours. And then Obama in particular, and the Democrats in particular, but a certain generation in particular decided that they wanted to put the screws to oil and gas development in the U.S. And it got harder to be successful and to get the hours. All of a sudden, my hours are cut. No overtime, not without approval. And even if we ask you to work the overtime, we're going to kind of pressure you to get the work done over and above your 40 hours because we've given you more than 40 hours worth of work, but we're going to pressure you to not put it down. And if you do put that overtime down, well, then there are going to be consequences. And we started to go back to this tightening of individual liberty and the ability to be successful economically, 
because that ability to be successful economically is upstream in some ways of being able to provide for a family and give to the church and be charitable to your friends and family who are in need. It's upstream. And so when economic opportunity is throttled down because a certain generation in power is just so sure that they know what's best, but they have no accomplishments to base that on, but they've been entitled and increasingly godless over the course of the decades of their lifespan. And they've racked up debt and they've mortgaged my generations and my children's generations future economically so that they could live a lavish lifestyle, so that they could do what they wanted to do, so that they could have what they wanted to have. I look at how easy it was to throttle down my best efforts. And I look at how difficult it's been, how challenging it's been to maneuver changing jobs, changing positions, taking on assignments, taking classes, taking trainings, to maneuver in such a way as to try and get on top of this pile of obstacles that the generation in charge has thrown at my generation. And then, as if all of that economic tinkering and moral decay and theological apathy of that previous generation, the boomer's generation, as if that wasn't enough, as if that weren't interfering with enjoying the fruits of my labors enough, then came COVID. 2020, as if on cue, Here came COVID and lockdowns and mask mandates and talk of vaccine mandates. And then all of a sudden, oil prices went negative per barrel. And I was right back to no overtime without approval. Meanwhile, the cost of everything is going up. We're going to throttle down your ability to earn an income, even as we are throttling up the cost of literally everything that you need to provide for your family. And then, oh, by the way, that same generation that has been so entitled, the children of the GI generation, that is just so sure that they're destined for great things, even though they have no accomplishments to justify such a conviction. And in fact, they're creating the conditions which bring us to a crisis moment, maybe even so that they can be the ones to solve it. I think that's exactly what happened with COVID, if you want to know the truth. I think It was cooked up in a lab, and then it was released at a convenient time so that they could look like heroes. The ones in power could look like they were rescuing us, and we should just be eternally grateful for that fact. Yeah, but if you created the crisis by your actions up to this point, for instance, funding gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, for instance— making us so dependent on China that when China just locks down and says, oh, we're not shipping to you, we're not exporting to you, we've got COVID, sorry, due to COVID, there's all of a sudden a shortage of goods. It's actually this generation's job to meet the crisis and to correct it. A mess has been made for us and left for us. And I look at Florida And I look at them just 
letting my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness, if you will. And I look at the mandates in the lockdown, folks, and how oppressive, tyrannical, totalitarian, cruel, harsh, egotistical they were and are, how vindictive. And I think, well, okay, for the folks who are very pessimistic about all this, yes, it, it may just take a miracle. But you know what? <laughs> we're, in, we're in luck. What good fortune. We <laughs> worship a God who does work miracles from time to time when it pleases him to demonstrate his power, to get glory for himself. I'm not saying he will, but I'm saying he does. I'm saying he can. I'm saying we should pray that God would deliver us from evil. For his is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen. We should pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should pray that. And I look at Florida here and I get goosebumps because it is not about taxing us more and telling us more of what we can't do and requiring us to get more permission slips because that's going to that's gonna help. That's going to fix it. No, no. The folks who want there to be a permission slip and a registration form and a background check for everything under the sun, you know what their problem is? They're egotistical jerks. Okay? That's what it is. They have a very inflated view of themselves, and they want that feeling of power over you and I, regardless what it costs us. That's where it turns cruel and malicious when you say, hey, hold on. That's not feasible. I can't come to you asking for permission every time there's a decision that needs to be made. That's not how I'm supposed to function. That is repressive. That is tyrannical. That is totalitarian. No. And then they try to destroy you. What is it that Moses and Aaron tell to Pharaoh because God told them to tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness? So it's not freedom in the abstract. But as Christians, we must understand that when God commands Pharaoh to let his people go, it is with the express purpose that they would be free to serve Yahweh their God. Is that a value to us? And if it's not, then what is our major malfunction? Is the real problem that there are Christians like me who say, we need freedom. And somebody says, oh, well, you should be laying down your rights more. If you're not laying down your rights more, if you're even talking about your rights at all, there's something unbiblical about that. Is that the real problem? Or is the real problem that there's a kind of pessimism and there's a kind of cowardice and there's a kind of corruption inherent to peace, peace when there is no peace, a cruelty and a callousness like when the people are told to make bricks without straw. And then they object and they're told, eh, you're just lazy. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like the boomer generation to the millennials. I've seen it again and again. And there are exceptions. There are lazy millennials. Sure. There are entitled millennials. Sure. There are some very splendid people in the boomers generation. Absolutely. But there are also some very cruel, dishonest, unscrupulous, vindictive people in positions of authority and look at the average age of Congress, for instance. Look at the stubborn intractability on the question of term limits, for instance. We have a generation in Congress 
who will only be removed when they die of old age. And I'm not suggesting, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting assassinating them to get them out of the way. I'm saying this is part of a mercy that we are not going to live forever in this life. I think this is a form of God's common grace, that there is a lifespan and there's an end to that lifespan. It's a mercy to those who suffer for righteousness' sake, that at a certain point, your sufferings will be ended. And when you wake up, you're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, and things are going to be as they should be, as you wanted and you strived for and you yearned for and you hungered and you thirsted for, you will get your reward. It also can be a grace and a mercy to the people in a general sense that those who are corrupt will die at a certain point, even however clever their schemes and traps may be, how clever their good old boys network might be at a certain point, it's appointed once for a man to die and then comes the judgment. Take it up with God. I actually say that's a mercy. That's a mercy to the people that they're oppressing, the people that they're defrauding, the people that they're slandering, the people that they are menacing. And I look at this ad from DeSantis and the fact of Florida having, sure, not handled it absolutely perfectly, but humanly speaking, handled the whole COVID business remarkably well, and they are being rewarded for it. And I should very, very, very much like if the United States of America were more like Florida in the near future. And my generation, the millennial generation, is about to have an opportunity to make that a reality by God's grace, provided the world stands and we don't just get into a nuke war with China and Russia. But even then, right? Even then. If the Lord comes back sooner, all the better. Provided he doesn't, we should probably have some idea of what we're going to be doing, what we're going to be about, what we're for and why, where our positions are based. Do we have a basis for our positions? Or have we just been assuming that this older generation will live forever and they will always be in that position of authority, that it will never be passed to us? Have we been assuming that? Because we shouldn't assume that. Also, we shouldn't assume for many reasons that we are always going to be the age that we are right now. I'm 36. I'll be 37 in November. We should not assume that we are always going to be in our 30s like we are now. At a certain point, very soon, we are going to be in our 40s. And then before you know it, we're going to be seniors. And will we correct these errors? I hope and I pray not in the direction of wokeness and social justice and critical race theory, because that will be a fight. I guarantee it. And if it's not a fight, it will be a horror. That's why we fight now. You fight now or you fight later. And if you fight later, remember that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I'll put it that way. Moving on. Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee posted just yesterday. Report. British government warns that reading Tolkien, Lewis, Orwell, and John Locke radicalizes people into far-right extremism. Did you know that? Did you know? That's, oh, wow. We are we're being radicalized. Huh. <laughs> Douglas Murray, British author, author of some books I can recommend to you without reservation. 
I don't approve of his lifestyle, but I do very much appreciate what he writes in The Madness of Crowds and in The Strange Death of Europe. He tweets out February 15th, quote, can you really be radicalized by great British railway journeys? My column in this week's Spectator on the UK government's Prevent program gone mad. So here's what it is. Here's the backstory. The Prevent program has to do with, at the beginning, trying to prevent young Muslims in the UK from becoming terrorists, grabbing a machete and cutting somebody's head off at the local park. That's what the Prevent program originally was supposed to do. Trying to figure out why young, and they can't say this because they got to be politically correct or whatever, or you might upset the terrorists, I guess. (laughs) But trying to figure out how to keep young Muslims from becoming terrorists. And newsflash, hint, hint, it has to do with their scriptures. It has to do with the Quran. Maybe try converting them into Christians and try that. Or deport them. That's also an option if they're going to be stabby or trying to set up bombs and all that jazz. Well, here's the problem with multiculturalism and with living in a post-truth, post-Christian society where you avoid admitting that the problem is Islam and the problem is Muslims and the problem is the Quran. How to get Muslims to not be radicalized is get them to not be Muslims. That's the only surefire way. Well, they can't say that. They don't want to say that. So now, in the interest of fairness, they're going to apply all of these tools to far-right extremists, so-called. And you can't make this up. You can't make it up that they're concerned about Tolkien, Lewis, Orwell, and John Locke. Because when people read their books, when people read The Lord of the Rings or The Chronicles of Narnia or 1984, or political philosophy, they become conservatives. They become conservatives. They're like, hey, this is great stuff. These values resonate with my soul. And they become conservatives. And that means they might just start arguing their principles in public with regards to the actual radicalism, which is coming from the left and is ascendant and is in power. Am I extreme? Am I extreme? Let me ask you that. If you were to transport me 100 years into the past or 200 years into the past, would I be regarded as extreme? By some, sure. Within my generation? Yeah, you betcha. And it has everything to do with not the truth changing, but sensibilities and how we were raised, how we were trained. Not in the way that we should go so that we're (laughs) going to be walking in the way that we should go when we get older, but when we've been trained up in the way that we should not go, that too. Many of us desperately need Jesus. And all of us do. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, man, some of us are closer to destruction than others. And there's no getting around that fact. If you want to say, well, it's all the same, well, then I say you're running dangerously close to subjectivism and the whole post-truth paradigm. Be careful. It is not all the same. Even in the story of God sending plagues on Egypt, he explicitly says, I'm going to make this one very clear so that everyone knows there's a distinction. I draw a distinction between Egypt 
and Israel. Egypt will be afflicted. Israel, no. Not a single animal in all the livestock of Israel will be harmed. But all of your livestock, Egypt, all of your livestock will die. No firstborn babies are going to be dead in Hebrew households that have the lamb's blood painted over the door. But every Egyptian house that has a firstborn in it will be weeping, will be mourning, because God recognizes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. That's what's next. You know, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that the British government can say, reading Tolkien, Lewis, Orwell, and John Locke radicalizes people into far-right extremism, and yet they don't say that reading the Quran for Muslims radicalizes them. You know, what's fantastically, hilariously stupid about this is that they've just reversed it, where it's like, oh, I know you are, but what am I? No, the British government is being radical here and taken over by radicals. The folks who are reading books that have been around and cherished and critically acclaimed and much beloved for decades, for a century, those people, they're not the radicals. By definition, they're actually the normies. You're the radical and you're crazy. (laughs) What are you trying to pull here? You know what's going to radicalize me? You trying to take away my Tolkien and my Lewis and my Orwell and my John Locke. That's what's going to radicalize me. Not reading those guys. (laughs) Hands off my books. Don't you touch them. (laughs) It's just, it's, it's bananas. It's bananas. But moving on, I'm going to play a clip for you. And this is from Woody Harrelson's monologue very recently. He hosted Saturday Night Live. And I can't give you any better of an intro to this clip than that. So I'm going to play it. And let me just say on the front end, I am not endorsing everything that he is saying. Let's not normalize drug use. Okay. Not for that. But with that proviso, take a listen. Here's cut two. So three years ago, Central Park, Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. Trying to resist the temptation to puff too early in the day. Of course, I succumbed. Like a lot of people, I have a devil on one shoulder, and on the other shoulder, I have a larger, more frightening devil. And there's a battle going on in here, you know? I'm I'm just saying that I am many different things. Anarchist, Marxist, Marxist, ethical, hedonist, non-discriminatory empath, epistemological deconstructionist, (laughs) Texan. (laughs) But back to the tree in Central Park in that script. Put yourselves in my place, lay the curve of your neck against the roots of the tree. What, What kind of tree was it? I mean, what kind of trees they have in Central Park? Oh yeah, it was a palm tree. So, lay, lay your head on the palm, fire up a hooter from Jeremy, and start reading. Okay, so the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes, and people can only come out 
if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea? <laughs> Being forced to do drugs? I do that voluntarily all day long. <laughs> anyway, it's about that time. Come on. <laughs> Still no Jack. Okay. Well, we got a great show for you tonight. <laughs> the silence. The silence of the audience where they're not sure if they're supposed to laugh at some of this. They were laughing before, but they stopped laughing all of a sudden, except like a couple of maybe nervous laughs. Like, ooh, is this supposed to be funny? Am I supposed to think this is funny? Yeah, that's the problem, that you're not sure and that you're worried. You're afraid. You're afraid to laugh, which is actually what makes it all the funnier. But why is this transgressive? Not because of the drug use. They, they're absolutely all about the drug use. And they think that's very, very funny because we've normalized being bad. But... What they're not sure they're allowed to think is funny is the idea that big pharmaceutical companies in conjunction with the mainstream media and the regulators and big government hoisted COVID and lockdowns and mandates on us and crashed the global economy and destroyed lives and livelihoods and then had the temerity to say, here, you will take this drug. You will, you will, you will. Oh, you won't? Well, then we're going to hate you. We're going to hate on you. We're going to try to destroy you even harder. You know, that's that's what it's like. Ooh, wow. Can he say that? Is he going to wind up mysteriously dead? Is he going to get canceled? Am I going to get canceled if I think that's funny? Ooh, I don't know. I don't. Can he say that? Well, he just did. Deal with it. Deal with it. We have to deal with that. Making fun of it is important because it takes some of the power away that that fear has. You're going to replace that fear with a embrace of the fact that this is ridiculous. We've been told to believe lies or else not to contradict them. We've been told to take part in evil or at least don't confront it. Don't call it to repentance. Don't correct it. Don't do justice. And all in the name of supposed social justice. Now, speaking of, this will be the last little bit of news here, and then I've got to run. Joseph McKinnon over at theblaze.com has a piece up from yesterday. Tulsi Gabbard, Democrats and Biden have embraced the very same geneticist core principles embodied by Nazism and Adolf Hitler. You got to hear this. You got to. You got to hear this. I'm not going to try and just read her quotes because I can play the audio for you and that's even better. But before I play the clip from Tulsi Gabbard's interview with Jesse Waters over at Fox News, I'm going to play a little clip of Corinne Jean-Pierre, White House press secretary, bragging on this administration's report card, their definition of success. Take a listen. Here's cut three. Uh, the cabinet is majority people of color for the first time in history. The cabinet is majority female for the first time in history. A majority of White House senior staff identify as female. Forty percent of White House senior staff identify as part of the racially diverse communities. And a record seven assistants to the presidents are openly LGBTQ+. So, again, this is something that the president prides himself on. And that's a problem. And that's a problem. That's a problem that you are selecting these people on the basis of 
their minority status first and foremost, not on the basis of their competence, because there's a kind of paternalism and there's a kind of commitment to failure objectively when you say, I don't care about their competence or their qualification. Otherwise, I only care about their skin color. It's a problem if the most qualified person happens to be a black man and you hire the white guy because you just have a problem with black men. It's a problem if the most qualified person for the job happens to be a Asian woman and you hire the white woman because you just have a problem with Asian women. It's also a problem if you hire only because she's an Asian woman and you could say that she's qualified in some sense. She's got this education. She was given this other position prior to the one that I'm going to appoint her for. Yeah, but was she qualified for that one either? Or was she put in that position because of her intersectionality? Yeah, don't ask that. That's racist. That's sexist. That's homophobic. That's discriminatory. Yeah, but it's not though. It's discriminating against incompetence, which we could stand to discriminate against more given this administration's track record thus far. But again, what was I saying about a certain generation that is actually entitled in a position of power doing anything and everything it can to hold on to the privileges that it associates with being in power, even if it is mortgaging my generation's future and my children's generation's future? What was I just saying about that? Here you go. Here you go. This is what it is. The cabinet is majority people of color, majority female, 40% identify as part of the racially diverse communities, and a record seven assistants to the president are openly LGBTQ+. Yeah, but are they qualified? Can they do the job well, or is their job just to get you voted in and get you to be untouchable, to where you can't be criticized? Is that their real job? Well, it looks like it. It certainly looks like it. Like what you care most about is power politically. What you care most about is being able to bully anyone who would disagree with you or contradict you into silence to where they can't question, they can't double check, they can't contradict, they can't propose something else so long as you were the first to state your case and you have an intersectional person at the fore. Here is cut four. Take a listen. Tulsi Gabbard explaining this in her own words to Jesse Waters. Let's bring in Tulsi Gabbard. She's a former presidential candidate and a Fox News contributor. And you can go down the list of the cabinet, Tulsi. Uh, I think we're a little tired of the diversity stuff. Yeah, you know, Jesse, what, what we're seeing here is their philosophy identity politics. And this is one of the main reasons why I left the Democratic Party, because you're seeing how their agenda of identity politics is directly undermining the traditional democratic values that were expressed so beautifully and clearly by Dr. Martin Luther King, that we should judge each other not based on the color of our skin, but based on our character. And yet, as you have displayed here over and over with example after example, they're proud to be judging people, hiring people, selecting people based on race, which is really, let's be clear how serious of a problem this is. It's based on genetics, race, uh, based on your blood, your genes. And, and where do we see that connection? Well, these are the very same geneticist core principles embodied by Nazism and Adolf Hitler. And this should be something that is sickening and alarming to every single Democrat and every single American. We have seen where this 
uh, philosophy can lead. Uh, the American people deserve so much more. We need leaders who will elect, who, who will select people based on their character, how committed they are to the Constitution and the capabilities that they bring to actually do the job that they're hired to do. Most importantly, their heart. Do they have a heart and commitment for serving the American people? As you said, putting service above any selfish interest, actually waking up every day saying, how can I best serve the American people who, who my, I'm charged to, to, to serve in whatever job it may be. You're saying the, the focus on genetics uh, is, is in a way similar to what was going on in Germany. You, you look at the core uh, values and core principles of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. What is it based on? It's based on genetics. This is, this is that philosophy of geneticism and discriminating against people based on their genes. And that's the issue here, really when you cut to the core of it, when they're standing there saying, hey, we are proud to be selecting people solely based on race, uh, that, that is alarming to me on so many levels. You see them, oh, we were going to select someone based on their race, based on their gender, these immutable characteristics that we're born with. Uh, this goes against, again, the very vision our founders had for us. It goes against traditional democratic values. And most of all, the American people deserve to know that those in positions of power and leadership are putting their interests first, regardless of race or gender or religion or politics or anything else. That's the responsibility of our leaders, and that's what we, the American people, deserve. Yeah, I'm not sure about the German thing, but I think you're right on this point. They care about what the administration looks like, but they don't care about what we look like. <laughs> and yes. we're out here saying, hey, we need this, we need that. Can you, there's a, and they're not even looking at us. They're just looking no, at themselves. They're putting themselves. themselves first. Right, exactly. They're putting themselves first. Exactly. And that alone is a huge disqualifier. Exactly. All right. And <clears throat> Tulsi Gabbard is exactly right. She's exactly right. Jesse Waters is being... I'll put it this way. Jesse Waters doing the hemming and the hawing and, oh, I don't know about the German Nazi thing. He is why I don't like Fox News. Anybody who says, oh, you're a conservative, you say all these things that are very conservative, I think you watch too much Fox News. No, I can't barely stand to watch Fox News, even when I have to in order to be informed about what's going on. What they're covering just happens to be important in some of the details. Their spin is to try and maintain as large an audience as they possibly can. And behind the scenes, they're mercenaries. They're trying to make money. That's what they're interested in. Their love is not necessarily for core principles, but they're so pragmatic, they're so prudential, and really what it boils down to is the love of money. But Tulsi Gabbard is right. She's right here. And if you actually study the history of the eugenics movement, it came from the U.S. It didn't come from Germany. It was exported. And the Germans just took it and ran with it. And there were eugenicists in here, <laughs> in, in America, uh, there were eugenicists here in government positions, in universities, major tycoons who had been backing eugenicist endeavors here in the U.S., who looked at the early days of what the Nazi party was arguing, what Adolf Hitler was arguing, 
their ideas, their solutions. And then when they started to implement them, Americans here, not a few, but a lot of very, very prominent Americans said, why can't we do that? That's what we should be doing. The blaze right up for this by Joseph McKinnon points out, rightly so, that Planned Parenthood, and I quote, was founded by a notorious eugenicist, Margaret Sanger, who sought to sterilize so-called undesirables by force or other means. In Sanger's own words, morons, mental defectives, epileptics, along with criminals, the poor, the illiterate, and the unemployed were unfit to breed and should therefore be precluded from doing so. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Sanger, uh, McKinnon goes on to document, started the Negro Project in 1939, wrote to a project director suggesting that black ministers had to gain the trust of the communities the birth control initiative was supposed to victimize, saying, quote, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, end quote. This is a very poorly kept secret, unless you just want to ignore it, that the left has for a hundred years and counting been regarding the mainstay of American people as a herd of so many cattle to selectively breed as they see fit, to bless and damn as they see fit. They don't regard us as having inalienable rights. This is exactly why, too, when you have angry parents going to school administrations, public school administrations, and getting nowhere, it's so easy for the people who actually run the public schools to just ignore the parents because they don't respect them. At a deep fundamental philosophical level, they don't respect them. They see them as animals to manage. They, they don't just look at the kids as being beneath them. They look at the parents as being well beneath them. And then when you take that idea from the education system and you extrapolate it out into every other department of this government, of the federal government, and you put somebody like a Biden in charge, what we see is the people at the very top who regard themselves as the ranchers, as the herdsmen, as those who are overseeing the herd. It's their herd to dispense with as they see fit. They can put people of color and sexual minorities, as they might say, into every one of these slots. And it's useful because it's not actually, first and foremost, about the qualifications of those people. It's about shielding themselves from critique and from accountability and from justice, more to the point. They say they are for social justice. They're not for social justice. They are for social engineering. And their idea of justice is that they get to play God. And everything that was horrifying and terrible and monstrous about the Nazis and Adolf Hitler, and what would we say? That it had to do with their being German? Well, then we're right back where we started. No, it, had, it wasn't first and foremost about them being German. It was first and foremost about their ideas and where did their ideas come from? Where did their core philosophical presuppositions come from? What was their worldview? How did they view themselves and where they came from and why are we here and what are we supposed to be about? How did they view their fellow man? Did they regard their fellow man as their neighbor and see themselves as having a command from God? Worked out in lots of little particulars, but at root, a command from God to love their neighbor as they love themselves. No, they didn't. They rejected that wholesale. 
And so also, everything that happened in Nazi Germany can happen here. It absolutely can happen here. And if you want to know the truth, look at the stats. Look at the stats. Look at the human cost in the millions and the tens of millions for the policies of the eugenicists, of the progressives, of the big government types. Look at the stats on how many babies have been aborted in 50 years. Over 60 million Americans aborted. First and foremost, by a generation that is now in charge, that is now refusing stubbornly to let go of their grip on power. And how they hide their own deficiencies is by putting diversity candidates to the fore again and again and again. And just to be very clear, I think it's great if the most qualified person happens to be a person of color and they get the job. I think that's how it should be. That's what Martin Luther King, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about. That, that is the content of their character. Do they do an excellent job? Oh, also, by the way, in order to judge character, you have to have an objective standard of virtue. And where are you going to get an objective standard of virtue if you've thrown out Christian faith and Christian truth? And that can't be used to weigh and measure whether this person is good, decent, honorable, honest, upstanding. It can't be. It can't be. So at root, this goes back not to human authorities. It goes back to God's authority. We have become puffed up. And when I say we, I mean we as an American people And it really is a generation in particular that has sown so much of this destruction. At a certain point, it will be a mercy to not only the United States of America, but to the world when this generation is no longer stubbornly clinging to power. Because look what they've done with their power. They've been like the wicked kings in Chronicles who worshipped foreign gods and were corrupt. The people groan under them, and it can't be any other way. The people will groan under them. Now, God's people should not lose heart. We should believe, we must believe that God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, including but not limited to a generation's worth of abuse and neglect and maligning and malfeasance. But the antidote is not going to be complaining. The antidote is going to have to be knowing what we should be about and being about those things. The antidote is going to have to be developing good character and knowing the truth because the truth will set us free. And freedom is critically important so that we can serve the Lord our God. That's the order of operations here. What I should like very much is if a generation of us seek God's face knowing full well that every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to be represented around the throne of the king, singing praises to him, affirming him. You want to affirm something, affirm that Christ is king. That's the kind of affirmation we need more of, not more of affirming anything and everything you feel. Sometimes you feel bad because what you're doing is bad and what you need is truth and repentance and God's grace. And we have that in Christ And we individually and as a nation desperately, desperately need it. We desperately need it. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. Stay tuned. I think it'll be our next episode that we talk more in depth about generations 
by Neil Howe and William Strauss. I have lots to say on it in the particulars. We'll see. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.